Hey, I'm Ryan. I've managed products at innovative companies like Weebly and Verb, and now I run my own. Each episode, I talk with product managers at some of the most successful companies in the world to learn how they do customer research, gather insights, and make the product decisions for both their customers and company. You'll get real world advice on how to ship products people want and love. Now let's get into people-driven products. Welcome, John. Thanks so much for joining us today. You've described your path as an eclectic choice of career decisions since you've worked as a game developer, a producer, a consultant, a variety of product roles at companies like Zendesk, and now you're head of product research and education at Amplitude. And since you're a product development nut, I can't wait to hear all the wonderful insights you have to share with us today. Can you kick us off by sharing a little bit about what led you to Amplitude and what you do there? Actually, I wasn't necessarily interested in going back to full-time employment. And I was having a lot of fun as a consultant working with interesting companies. I would work with a healthcare startup and different, and, and I was really enjoying that. And Sandhya at Amplitude just started hounding me. She was the head of marketing at that time. And I really credit her forethought for seeing that there might be a good fit for that because she saw that I was doing a lot of writing and a lot of drawing and sharing all the funny doodles that I share on Twitter, doing that stuff. And I think she realized that there was an opportunity at Amplitude. So I actually joined as as an evangelist for the product. Now, it was kind of funny. I don't think I was the best evangelist because as a product evangelist, you can be an evangelist for the product or you can evangelize for the surrounding incentives for the product. And I mostly really, really, really like talking about impact-driven product development and how you can improve how you work and all sorts of other things. And my philosophy was that the product would just sell itself. You know, all I needed to do was talk about this other stuff. And I, I really do actually believe that Amplitude sells itself if you frame the bigger picture to do that. So she kind of sensed somehow that I would enjoy this a lot. And I really did. And so, you know, I've been been at Amplitude now for close to three years and doing the, the uh, product evangelist role. And then there was an opportunity on her. I was educating. I mean, that's what I was doing. And there were other people at Amplitude who also seemed to be wired as educators. Uh, Archana on my team now wrote our playbooks. I wrote the North Star playbook while we were on the marketing team. So we were all driven to helping people in maybe a slightly different way than, than like traditional marketing roles. And so we started this team and it's been awesome since then. I mean, it's been it's been hard during the pandemic, obviously, to, to scale up a team and keep motivated and doing all that stuff, but it's been pretty rewarding. That's awesome. And recently I was watching your Fireside Child Product School and you describe your philosophy of product management. Can you help us, you know, for the audience understand what that is? Even in the last year, I think I've become a lot more circumspect about different models of product management. Maybe three or four years ago, I very, very much was a zealot for this idea that the product manager was not the mini CEO. They were not the only decider. They were there as a facilitator. They were there to bring context to the team. I worked at a company called AppFoil that really embodied that type of cross-functional collaboration. You know, there wasn't really a hierarchy on the team. And I was a UX researcher there, but it was still sort of the same thing. And so I had a lot of 
early experiences with that idea. And the reason why I'm, I kind of said maybe in the last year, it's not that I've changed my perspective. I think that's very, very much my philosophy of product management. But I think as you start to meet with so many teams, I meet with maybe a team a day. <laughs> and so I've been doing this now for three years. That is a lot of teams. It's maybe like five, 600 teams. And you learn that things are very culturally specific. I mean, in the Bay Area, for example, there's a couple characteristics. I mean, first, the engineering culture in the Bay Area is very individually focused, you know, give an individual a project and let them run with it. And that has a big impact on PMs because you're on a team and as a product manager and, you know, you've got engineers on your team, they're doing their different things and everyone's really career driven in the Bay Area. So like everyone wants their own promotion and wants their own thing. And then you compare that to like Northern Europe and more collectivist cultures. And it's very, I probably should be in Northern Europe because that's, I'm very like collectivist and do your thing, but you meet these companies and you see that people are happy and that they're, you know, not dysfunctional. They have like pretty decent working agreements about how they're working. And so I think I've come around that like, I might, I have my personal style and then I have a perspective that different versions work in different settings. Yeah. And a lot of the theme in our past discussions with leaders has been around the product manager as an editor of ideas. And it sounds like that aligns perhaps with providing that context for the team to make those decisions. Is that how you see it? Yeah. I, I think that the allergy I have is that any of these words that sort of put the product manager on a pedestal. So even the word editor, I'd be like, I don't know. I'm imagining a situation. Well, I mean, I guess some writing situations, the editor and the writers like are symbiotically joined and they have a great relationship. Yeah. So anything that sort of smacks of any kind of like paternalistic or, you know, parental thing, I usually have some kind of knee jerk reaction to, but at the same time, again, that varies in environments, like in environments where is a lot of business context and where the best products don't necessarily win. It very much is about getting the the strategy and the motion of that particular space or, or some kind of like growth loop or whatever. What I've said recently is, the product manager's role is all the stuff that an amazing designer, amazing researcher, amazing developers working together might not catch. So it's like they could do everything right, but there's still there, there's still these gaps, not only just gaps, but there's still like domain knowledge that would really help for a product manager to be able to set that up. Because that's kind of how I believe the team could work, right? I imagine, you know, if you empower those people, I mean, a great product designer joined at the hip with a great developer, can do amazing things. I mean, that's how many companies start are two people like that getting together. So that's sort of my belief at the moment. It's going to change next year. I'll have like a different philosophy of it. So, And definitely agree. You know, having the right team, giving them the context that they need to make those decisions. I think that's really important. And I will say that my background being in product management, I actually felt like if I set up the framework for folks to make their own decisions that they were able to find and make better decisions than perhaps, you know, let's say locking myself up in a room and, you know, thinking through exactly how something's going to work. And I think it set me up well for now CEO of a company where I often have the same framework, whereas a product manager, no one reported to me. Right. And so it's like, <laughs> how can I enable, how can I support, how can I foster success? And it's like CEO, there's actually is a direct report but we know that's no longer the effective way to formally lead either. It's really that framework and that empowerment and that servant leadership that ultimately will drive a better business outcome. Yeah, I've been thinking a lot about because now I'm a manager, you know, this, this team and I have great people working with me. It is a little different. 
the one thing I always remember, Espanol has been really privileged in this particular space, is that it's really easy to say titles don't matter, roles don't matter, this and that. We're all working on the same thing. But you know, especially for people who are underrepresented and career trajectory and the career ladder and making sure that people get credit for what they, they're really interested in getting credit for. I used to kind of like diminish that stuff because as a product manager without that kind of formal thing, I would, I would say, well, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. We're all in this and we're doing it. But now as a manager and, and thinking deeply about people's need to feel recognized and people's need to, they want to take charge of their career and how you can help them do that. There's obviously slightly different di- dynamics, but to your point, a good framework actually lets you focus on all that. Like, you know, a good framework just gets a lot of the junk out of the way and inspires autonomy and inspires people to be able to, to achieve their career goals as well. So I see it both ways, but I've, I've come to now back into doing some management stuff. I'm like, wow, it is kind of important. Like for some people, titles are important and that's not a bad thing to say. It's, it's just what it is, which is good. It's a very individual decision. You know, a lot of folks, like you mentioned, it is some, it's, it's not. And earlier in the discussion, you mentioned the North star metric and some recent writing that you've done around thinking around leading indicators Get us up to speed on your framework for creating North Stars and what that framework is at a high level. I'll explain this from two angles. And I think one mistake too is that people assume your North Star framework is just a metric. They actually say, what's the North Star metric? And, and you can pick a quantitative metric as a North Star metric, but there's it's more to it. And so I'll try to explain. At the highest level, the North Star framework is a tree of beliefs that range from kind of leading indicators to lagging indicators and leading indicators to sustainable differentiated growth for your company. And so driver trees and these trees of metrics are not a new idea by any means. I mean, that's kind of as old as setting goals itself, you know, or deciding what your hypothesis or whatever. So the main idea is that you pick a North Star metric or sort of North Star belief, and then you pick a series of inputs into that. And if you can imagine that the connections between those inputs and the North Star are themselves beliefs, right? It's, it, it reads almost like a sentence. You know, so for example, in Amplitude, ours is we really believe in empowering people to be learners and to help their whole team learn using our product. And we believe that's a function of activating accounts and getting clean data into their account, helping them start to create their own insights. And then the long tail consumption of those insights as their team starts to collaborate. So I've just said that as a sentence. And we believe if we do all that right, it will lead to sustainable differentiated growth for Amplitude. The next layer of that is, you know, the minimally viable measurement or what's the best measurement we have for those particular ideas. So what I described first is like, hey, it's for learners and things like that. We have a metric called weekly learning users, which is WLUs, which is our North Star metric. And then I describe, well, you can activate accounts, you can get whatever. And we actually have a metric, which is basically your ability to get an account to a certain number of WLUs, which would involve activating that account and getting data into that account, doing all those things. And I describe people creating their first insights, and that's called broadcasted learnings. And that's an actual metric and involves sharing things, et cetera, et cetera. Consumption of learnings works the same way. So the best way to think of the North Star framework is it's your strategy manifesting in a pretty simple collection of ideas that have a relationship with each other and then layering on 
metrics on top of that or measurement, you know. So to give you an example of the qualitative stuff, I was doing this for a bank and they said, well, we need to have bank level trust. And then of course, you know, someone's like, well, we can't choose that input. Why? How are you going to measure that? How are you going to measure bank level trust? Let's say we haven't, we lose the account data. Well, then the whole company's gone. So by the time we measured it, <laughs> that's it. Right. And then I think it was a UX researcher there that said like, what's well, a belief? Like we do need bank level trust, right? And then I remember some of the, I said, well, what's the minimally viable measurement? Like, how would you think about trust? And it was the UX researcher was like, well, if we had to think about trust at the moment, we might use a survey vehicle for that. We might use some other things. In fact, we might just randomly select 10 customers to do qualitative, you know, in-person research with every month or so and, and get the temperature. So that's the point there is that it's not, the qualitative or the quant side, it's like, what measurement do you need to understand these beliefs and how they're related with each other? And then over time, you know, it's the Eric Ries thing, like a startup is this sort of learning experiment and you're, you're getting more and more certain about the connections between things. So then over time, teams iterate on the metrics they use and maybe switch things out as their strategy changes. So hopefully that explains how it works. I love it because it's kind of simple and heady at the same time. Andrew Chen says there's like a real art to it. And I love that. Like, I love, I was doing it with a super big retailer in Europe and I can't name the name of the retailer, but in your cultural document, you talk about your customers as being part of the Acme or whatever family. What if your North Star was family members? And then you can see this light bulb go off that they're like, wait, we might be able to measure that. Family, family members, not as in like, you know, your whole family uses the company, but they're saying you're part of the blank family. You know, it's like target of Europe or something. You're part of this family to do it. And so I, I love that kind of like, is that a metric? No, it's an idea. But then you can start thinking about measurement to unpack it. And I love those types of problems. I think they're really fun. Awesome. And you, know, you mentioned weekly active learners for Amplitude. Is that something that changes very often or is that you mentioned perhaps just when the strategy changes? Do you see that as a multi-year adjustment? Yeah. So the way that I think is that your North Star ideally sticks around for one to three years. And I see the inputs as at a minimum sticking around for one to three quarters. Like if you were really early stage and you had a new idea and you weren't quite sure of it yet, maybe you retired after a couple quarters. But let's say you're really early your strategy is your strategy. And you you might have an idea what your North Star is. And then three months later, you're like, it's not exactly that. We weren't in the business of X. We're in the business of Y. And so what I say to teams is just have it reflect the strategy. I use the new employee test, which is you have a new employee, a pretty bright product manager who joins your team. You show them your North Star and the inputs. How much can they infer from the company? And that's why you shouldn't use revenue or shouldn't use weekly active users for your North Star, because what would that new product manager say? Like, okay, you're just like every other 50 companies somewhat in this space. I mean, I'm not saying weekly learn users is genius or anything, but another analytics provider could be like weekly, weekly querying users, or maybe they're just for analysts. So they're not really into that kind of volume play, right? They're more about empowering the, like tableaus would probably not be something that was as team oriented because Tableau is about being the best in the world at visualization. So you are a passionate visualizer <laughs> of data. So you would have a different North Star if you were Tableau, for example. And you mentioned too that example of trust with that bank and that example of that qualitative data point. How do you see the quantitative, let's say the behavioral and the qualitative 
really coming together and building that framework of overall success of not only customer success, but also business success. Yeah, I was thinking about it recently, and I, I actually wrote this post for it where I think that the, you know, I have a, a picture in the middle of this post where, you know, it's a quadrant or whatever, but on the x-axis, it's sort of your quantitative maturity or use or whatever, you know, ranging from extremely, well, let's say just non-existent to extremely coarse green metrics, all the way to kind of what Amplitude is focused on these really granular behavioral event-based analytics. And then the y-axis is where are you in your sort of qualitative journey? And it starts down in the middle of like, you just don't know at all. And then it kind of goes up to a lot of these sort of I don't know, they, they're just like overdone VOC tools. Like they're, I just don't think they're measuring what they think that they're measuring, right? They're, they're really hyper-loaded. I don't, I don't want to go start naming all the metrics, but I think we all know what they are. And then like right up at the top, it's like the deep, you know, in-person qualitative research that you're going to do. And what I think the problem is, I mean, first of all, if I only had one option, I would choose deep qualitative research. You know, so like if, if you said never talk to a customer again or never see analytics again, I would say I'm going to choose I'll talk to customers any day. So that's not a terrible place to be in the upper left there. The only looking at quant stuff in the lower right, you'll be equally confused in one way. Like the one, you'll know a lot about your customers, but you won't really know about why anything happens. And if you only like are deep down in the quant side, you'll know everything that's happening, but you won't have any idea why it's happening. I think that the danger zone is kind of in the middle where people like ascribe things to either the VOC efforts or other things that don't really exist, or they describe things to the analytics that aren't really real. They're not, they're sort of stuck in the middle. So I think that's the messy middle. So my vision of it is that I didn't work at a big consulting firm, but up into the right is always the where you want to be. You want to be in the upper right. So in the upper right is the good use of both. But I, I think that like the interplay we're looking for is using the right tools to answer the right questions and having a lot of curiosity as a team. I do think that bringing teams close enough to customers to have like real in-person conversations whenever possible is great. But frankly, the thing I, I love most, I think it was at Pendo, and then I've subsequently done the same thing at Amplitude too. The, the first thing I was like, I'm going to use this to narrow, I'm going to use the behavioral data to narrow down to a group of human beings. And then I'm going to try to think about how to have conversations with them. So either using like the types of interactions that you all offer, and that was really expensive and time consuming if you were trying to spin it up by yourself. So it's like awesome that you are doing it, right? So I'd love to have that kind of stuff. But that's what I was always thinking about is that back and forth. So I might do qualitative research to even form the behavioral cohort. Then I've got the behavioral data. So then I fine tune a behavioral cohort. Then I go back to that behavioral cohort and I look who's in it. And I try to think about ways that, they, you know, we can do some interesting research, you know, to get some of them to do some kind of like qual research. Then I go back and do the deep research from cohort and then have that kind of person thing. So I think it's this dance between the methods and just avoiding that terrible middle ground where it's kind of like, yeah, we use MPS and page views. Like that's terrible. No one wants to just have MPS and page views that you're never going to do well with just MPS and page views. <laughs> yeah, I definitely agree. And I, I feel like page views and time on page was the web, you know, kind of the 1.0 version of analytics. And, you know, NPS was the 1.0 version of qualitative, you know, the 80s metric created by Bain. And we all know the pitfalls of NPS. Now, usually we've actually done several webinars on moving beyond NPS. A lot of our education is around 
people come to us wanting to use MPS. And we actually say that's a great starting point. But here is actually a more kind of nuanced, kind of advanced way to take that further and measure those moments of signups or onboarding or that subscription process. Or when you churn, let's ask those questions. And at Weebly, we are actually collecting NPS and we saw that it's such a macro question and incorporates so much into people's lives that we might have a competitor run a Super Bowl ad and our NPS is impacted. Or perhaps, you know, the stock market is down and, you know, people are less likely to start a business, which impacts the Weebly NPS. And so it can be very dangerous when you get in these like global macro metrics. And that's why I'm so excited about Amplitude and UserLeap, we've announced that integration together so that teams who are using both tools can actually switch between the different data sets, the qualitative and the behavioral, look at those together, look at that data set in one view and have the best of both. It's so funny because like you all do the, um, so at, at Polio, I think it was, you know, me sitting there and suddenly we would take, it was kind of good in a way because, you know, the, the good part of NPS, which was actually the interesting qualitative feedback, we'd, get, we'd ask the second question. So we'd get the interesting question, but the system that we had to create to like do the textual analysis was incredibly time consuming. So what we would do is we'd have multiple people redo all the NPS things. And then I, we would create like a heuristic system to be able to tag certain bits of feedback with certain themes. And then you could add to the heuristic system if you want. So we would categorize the particular feedback. We were basically doing like human sentiment analysis, which was really, really annoying. But all we would do is end up things with like, hey, if they mention the phrase easy to use, they're going to have an NPS of 50 or more. You know, and if they use the word accounting, they're going to have an MPS of minus 10. And it was just like all that work, it was good. But the fact that that stuff is sped up for teams, I think, I, I think the other thing too, is that teams need to be more empowered to not do like pseudo rigor. So I think that it, it's like, if you, if you tap someone on the shoulder and say, Hey, Hey, what did you think of that interaction? And you do that to enough people and you look at that, you're not, you're not pretending that's the most rigorous survey ever. You're not going to base your whole business on that particular survey, but it's the appropriate amount of rigor for maybe what your team needs to do at that particular time. So one amazing thing I think with, with Amplitude and doing this is everyone's always so excited that they got, you know, 10,000 survey results. Was 10,000 results what you, did you need to ask 10,000 people that question? Because if you're using a part of your product that only has like 175 people to do it, you don't need to ask 10,000 people that question. Right? Like you can tap 175 people on the shoulder, ask them like an appropriately rigorous question, not like overwrought or not like trying to bank your whole company on it. And so I think that teams should feel, I don't know if I'm kind of describing it right, but when you in UX research, when everything's on the line and you have to make the survey that you're going to give to 10,000 people, you actually have to test that survey even before you send it to the 10,000 people. Like you need to do a lot because you're going to get one shot to do it. And so you better have this particular survey. But the idea that with stuff like UserLeap, you can be like, well, we're a team. We're curious about this. We're not talking about 10,000 people. We've got a pretty focused area of question that we can ask. And we've got a good opportunity in the workflow to ask them that particular question. And it is about bank trust. You might find that the question didn't get the types of data you wanted, but it's not like you'd have asked 10,000 people that question. So I think that there's like really good opportunities for, for teams to feel more empowered and a little bit more fearless and 
not worrying about tapping people on the shoulder and asking them a, a pretty specific question. I don't know. That's what I like about this stuff. It's like appropriate. It's like the micro interactions of learning content. You know, you could make the biggest e-learning class or you could tap someone on the shoulder with micro learning. And so I kind of feel that that's like some of the surveys are like that. Yeah. Th- those learning moments. Definitely. And one actually surprise of creating usually is that the response count is asymptotic where 10,000 is actually the most number of responses you would ever actually need. Even if it's, <laughs> even, I think it's like 1 million or 5 million users, it doesn't even matter. It just kind of caps out at 10,000. And we ended up building in the calculation and nearly every instance is between three and 600 people to get 95% confidence interval. And so unless you're deciding, you know, whether to amputate a leg or something, you probably don't need that many responses to make a decision. And, and that's kind of like making the techniques appropriate to think. I mean, I know Erica Hall and people like that. She's, she rips apart a lot of survey design as being crummy survey design. But I think what I'm trying to unpack in my head is that I think she's right. I think there are a lot of poorly written surveys, but that's amplified and worsened by bad targeting and that not being contextual and not having a specific question, a specific moment that you're asking the specific thing. So yeah, I think you need to work on surveys and you shouldn't be bad at survey writing, but we make it a lot worse for ourselves by like all the other stuff, like adding it as your official question to your big NPS whatever that you're doing. Yeah. Or your email survey two months after they no longer use your product. And they don't even remember what you do, which I've gotten so many of those. And you wonder, even if it is great survey design, to your point, what, you know, what value of data will that be if I remember what I did with your product? And so thinking a little bit about empowering teams, you said that product managers should think about how to empower everyone around them. What are some ways that you empower teams or recommend other product managers to empower their teams? We touched on one, which is the sort of putting time into thinking about frameworks and bringing that context. Because I think this is the interesting thing. Someone the other day made this great point where they said, yeah, they empowered me, but all I was left with was, was just more questions. I was thinking about the other day, it's not empowering to say, you all do what you need to do, do whatever you got to do. That actually feels like you don't care about what they're about to do, you know, which then doesn't translate the same way. So I think that the first thing is to think about frameworks that leave a lot of room. And, and it's funny, I'm just working on this right now at Amplitude with the learning team where we've got a really great team. And I just know I'm like, wow, if we get right down, if I create or if I set goals around work streams, you know, like micro learning or whatever, that's basically telling people how to do it. Okay, so we don't want to do that. And then I moved up to maybe the persona level. And I was like, they're probably really curious about researching the personas for this. Like if I just walk in there and I say, well, we've got Jane and you've got to make the Janes really happy. If they're smart, they're going to be, does Jane exist? I've got to learn more about Jane. Why did you just come up with Jane? What's the research behind Jane? And then I'm like, okay, well, let's just notch it up one level more. Like what's the clearest description of a business outcome and amplitude that they would feel is sufficiently like humane and human to be able to attach learners to, but then feels like it means something. So maybe at Amplitude, that would be like, you know, lowering barriers to using Amplitude for an initial user. We believe that that's part of the puzzle of creating a WLU and creating a champion or whatever. And so then that starts to feel about right, right? It's like, if I can get the rest of the business to agree that my team will try to chase that, like, do what they need to do to move that particular metric and then give the team a lot of autonomy around 
the definition of the persona and doing the research behind it, it feels better. And that's the one thing that I think product managers miss is that this is the art of like goal setting or framework design. There's perfection. And then there's just, does it feel about right? Like, is it, is it about the right clarity that you think passionate problem solvers will want. So I think that that's the first thing in empowerment is to think really deeply about the frameworks that you create and that you help align people around both externally to team and then internally. I think that would be the one of the big ones. I think the other thing too, is just be so conscious of all these little conversations you have where you learn interesting things about the business, but then they're not in the context of the rest of the team being there. Like, oh, I went to the PM weekly. And I learned this amazing thing about whatever, about the strategy. And then like, you don't take time to go and share that back or to to help the team learn about that. And so that creates this weird dynamic where you've got information up in your head, which you think is really important. And then the team doesn't have that. And then when you finally share it with them, they're like, why did we just hear about it? So I think just being really careful about, you know, framing notes you take in other conversations and then coming back to the team. So it sounds like pushing data down so that people really understand the transparency of the decision and when that decision's made. I also think the final thing is just empathetic to a team. Like if you have people who are new to product development, you don't go and say to them, can you make us a million dollars in a year or something? Like that's really uncomfortable. If you think of like flow psychology, that's way too much challenge and way too much ambiguity and way too much uncertainty. And they might not feel equipped to be able to do that. And I think that this is this thing with OKRs and autonomy or whatever and doing this is that you, you meet a lot of leaders like, I'm, I'm doing what I just read, which is that I should get the team autonomy and doing that thing. And then you ask the team and they're like, this is so vague. I get the point of this, but could we just have a little bit more direction? So I think the final thing is listen to your team and understand what they think empowerment looks like. Because if they're new to product development and are more junior in their career, you could actually be setting them up to fail and you could be just creating a lot of extra chaos for them and like three-dimensional chess that they they had no real interest in playing at the moment. Where if it's too prescriptive, which I know you've written about, it can be a little bit suffocating. Yeah, that's what I mean. It's like kind of the art, but but it's the art, but you can get way up in your head. I mean, I self-admittedly made this mistake in the last couple of weeks too, where it was just too flexible. You know, I wasn't like giving any of my particular feedback in an attempt to be empowering. So this is one of the big challenges of product management, I think. Awesome. Are there areas that you feel like are still unsolved or product management is still figuring out for for digital teams? And what are those areas? I mean, I see this an amplitude given that some companies are operating like it's 2002. The 20 year time span you know, there's a huge wave of companies that are having to figure, like take the same journey that all the companies have done. So if you're a bank operating like it's 2006 and your banking co- friends are like 2008 and 2005, your next step might be just decoupling some of the dependencies in your organization so the teams can even move, you know, so that they can even function to do those things. So that's why it's kind of a hard question because I don't think there's any, there's no new puzzles that no team anywhere in the world is experiencing. It's just kind of variations on a theme to do that. I do think that there's evolving problems and, and interesting things. So one thing I've noticed is that with every new level of kind of enhancing how product works, it brings up new problems, right? So I think this is why you see maybe product ops springing up or why you see in some organizations like 
now design has been empowered to the point where they want to have a seat at the table. They want to do these things. So it's kind of like the same company that needed that really powerful, strong product leader to get them out of that one little step they were at now is in a point where they need a more sort of collectivist approach and they're trying to bring up the rest of the organization. So I I don't really have any like profound things to say other than we're seeing the shifts that you'd expect to see over time. And lots of companies are having to travel through that same particular path to do it. So I don't know, I'm too close to this because I see the range like every day, which is challenging. Yeah, that's interesting because in my perspective, you look at the Google era of building products, it was engineering led and it was the engineering PhDs figuring out how to build the product. And then in some companies, it moved to design led. Airbnb was one example. Other companies that moved to product led and some state engineering led. I think Facebook was an example for a while, but then it shifted to product led and the consultants and MBAs. But what I'm hearing from you, and I definitely agree, is that we're all shifting to this balance between design and engineering and product where it's not one that should be leading the team. It's really this kind of triumvirate of different decision makers and, and you know stakeholders who will perhaps have equal say, but ultimately it's pushing all the decisions down as much as you can to collectively empower. I mean, I have this drawing called the journey to product teams or whatever. And one thing I noticed in it is that the progression is just, it's kind of a pendulum too. I think some companies push it to the limit, then come back. But, but basically, teams are getting closer and closer and closer to customers, sort of disintermediated, right? And then you also see the kind of oscillation of different role definitions. You know, sometimes it's, there's, it's too collectivist and then, then it's too hierarchical within the team and it's not that that kind of goes back and forth. We're getting more and more data Teams are more empowered to kind of run the experiments that they want to run. There's more kind of fewer people proxying the business because in a lot of environments, the product manager is actually like four levels deep of a proxy to some other part of the business, but you're seeing. So I I think that that's what you're just generally seeing what we would expect, right? We're just seeing the barriers sort of slowly fall and then companies having to respond to what that means for the company. And wrapping up here, John, what's your top piece of advice for other product managers who want to create products people love? Get on the phone, talk to someone, (laughs) talk to a customer. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I would revise that a little bit. I would say get on the phone and talk to someone, get totally immersed in the customer world is definitely a good thing to do. I do think that you have to think about, you know, one thing that we did with this, the North Star framework, whatever, is this idea of like a persistent value creation model. Like it's really kind of the the product strategy side of the thing. And so if you want to create a product that will sustainably keep the promise to customers, you need to solve some of those things. I mean, I think before the call, you and I were talking about particular companies that were trying to do all sorts of things, like trying to do five things really well. And then you could argue, well, you know, that was kind of by design or whatever, but you can, then you could argue, like, well, I don't know, that's kind of strategic misstep. I mean, you, could have taken that at a different route and kind of gone on doing those things. So yes, I a hundred percent believe in really close to customers is good. And the quant definitely helps that and tools like usually certainly do. But I also think that like figuring out a little bit of the strategy discussion, or at least kind of what the knowns and unknowns sort of, I mean, there's a lot of great products that have just kind of failed, or I think we, we always describe it to like 
the team, you know, oh my God, they, they just didn't do that. But there's a lot of great teams that have failed because they were like too early or too late or, you know, just didn't road. They read the tea leaves kind of wrong. And it's not just all in retrospect. I'm not like backseat driving. Like they, they legitimately just did not read the tea leaves right at the time <laughs> to do that. So I, I would say balancing the strategy view with the sort of connecting with customers is probably what I would leave people with. And I definitely agree. You mentioned you got your start on Medium. Today, I would say most people might not choose Medium as their source, but it was a fantastic team built by some world-class people, but perhaps maybe there were some strategic missteps along the way and, and, and we'll see. Yeah, it's a tough one because it's so hard to put your, yourself in the shoes of those. I mean, inertia is so hard. I think that that's the thing is that people talk about agility or they talk about whatever, but you know, you hire, it's, it's kind of like, you know, every startup spends all their money in 12 to 18 months anyway. And then they're going to have to like dream up some new version of what they're going to do. That's going to justify getting another whatever million dollars to do the thing. So these kind of like physics of the startup world, I think people underestimate, you know, they put a lot into the product and what the product is doing is the team killing it or they kind of doing those things. But I think that if maybe that's a bit of advice, if you're going to be a product manager in the startup venture backed world, become really knowledgeable about how that world works and how money flows and, and why companies spend all their money in 12 to 18 months, no matter how much they (laughs) raise, you know, and also get in while the going's good and get out when the going's not great. I mean, you're not that company. You're, you don't owe it to them after you've worked there. So I think that's also like, if you want, you know, maybe you have thoughts on it too, but there's probably times when it's a great time to join the startup. And it might be like after they've set that vision for why they're going to get this other bit of money to spend in 12 to 18 months, they've got new leaders, they're excited, they've got a really clear vision. And then there's probably times when you don't want to join because it's at month 16 and 15 and you're wondering what the hell is going to happen. And there's a lot of strife and shifts. So, you know, that's a little bit of advice if you want to work in startups is like learn how the money flows for your own personal health and then also for when, you know, the team and how, how it works. I don't know. We, I don't know how we got into money and venture capital, but like that's, yeah. Yeah. So a couple of themes I'm hearing here for the advice. One, talk to the customers, which it sounds like, you know, if you had to kind of choose getting on the phone would be the number one source for you of understanding what's working and not working. I definitely, which I, I'm a strong believer in, you know, give that I started user leap and love qualitative data. The strategy piece is interesting too, because I think that's one of the most underrated skills in Silicon Valley right now, just given how many competitors there are in every space it really does come down to product and company strategy. And you could listen to your customers and follow your data, but that might not actually be the winning outcome. That might not be the winning hand anymore, where I think five or 10 years ago. Yeah, and whose hand are you playing? I think that's the thing to realize as well is that like your company is a feature for a venture capital firm. You're one of the experiments they're running. And so like that's how they're spending the money on the space. But but maybe the point there too is if you're a product manager at one of those companies, is like be realistic about the the physics of the situation and then kind of you know set maybe that's yeah, I, I like your point there where it's easy to boil it down to just the purity of a product strategy, but just be be aware of how it fits into the larger landscape. I think um, I would agree with your. I think someone said that even the other day about like talking to customers, like we don't have time to talk to the customers. This is just a big bet. Like we just need to ship, 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 ship. And it's almost like what they were saying is we, we don't have time for disconfirming information. If it's wrong, we've screwed up. 
It's all belly up anyway. It's binary. And if it's right, it's just, we're just going to get pumped up about what we're doing. So like, why even talk to them? We just have to keep going. And I think one of the things is if you are like a 20 or 30 year old company that's doing some kind of digital transformation or is, or is in healthcare or is in other spaces that I've kind of been involved in, and you look to those companies for their culture and models and things, and you try to apply it in your particular company, <laughs> just be aware what you're doing, I think. Yeah. And I know with growth experiments, often, you know, nine out of 10 fail. So in many ways, you know, that sounds like a company is really a single growth experiment, perhaps, in, in, in that model. And you're going to get a high failure rate, which maybe people know going in. And to your point, it's what hand are we playing? And looking at like the broader space of, you know, the investors and, you know, how you fit in and whether this could work or not. I think too, the overcapitalization, there are a lot of bets of not only you succeeding, but you being able to get to that multiple evaluation that, you know, maybe is now expected of you with the expectations of this funding. Yeah, we'll see. Amplitude is growing super fast. We're super excited about this year. It's like I'm, we're on the rocket ourselves. So like, it's an exciting time to, I'd be interested in your take on that with, with UserLeap is that like one of the reasons why I joined Amplitude is they had a really small engineering team, which I liked because I was kind of like normally when the ratio of the engineering team to the rest of the org is like off, I'm, I'm usually like, oh God, they, they just spent so much money on sales and other things. But then I was kind of looking at Amplitude and I was like, this is great because They've got a really small, scrappy, successful engineering team that's shipping a lot and is and is being really successful. And I really like that to do that. But I think that that's like a, yeah, there's sort of signs when, but I love the focus. You know, like I like the focus on analytics. I like the focus on, you know, product. And even Amplitude's gone through, first it was mobile analytics and then it was product analytics. Then it sort of shifted a little bit to this like product intelligence thing that we're on, you know, at the moment and probably shift in the future at some point again, but like, that's still pretty consistent. It's not like a big step each of the way, which I like. Right. Massive changes in strategy. There's a lane, you're very focused, but you're just riding the waves as the evolution occurs. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. That's exactly how we, how we see it at user leap is that we're, you know, I feel like our roadmap could take us the next three years of just extending our current product. You know, and that's usually where you want to be as a company. You don't want to have to feel like you have to move too far outside of your current lane for success to occur. Because I think that's where often the buyer can get a little bit confused. And I remember at Weebly, we we did do, which I don't recommend anyone do this. If you use a roadmap <laughs> voting board on people submit ideas and you vote, it will lead you down the wrong. I see a lot of other solutions that do this and you can give your customers a place to submit ideas and vote on those ideas. But what ended up happening is our free customers, 95% of our customers are free at Weebly. They actually want us to build more free things. And so we were a website builder and they wanted a free newsletter builder <laughs> and they wanted a free online store and they wanted all these free things. And I think our top 10 requests were things that free users not paying us anything wanted more free things of. And so you can imagine, you know, this kind of voting board, if you listen to these voting boards, which is why I don't recommend them, that they will actually take you to this path of failure. And I think that's an example of poorly done research where it's like, oh, this is how we're going to talk to our customers. They're going to vote and tell us what to do. I feel like that's one of the worst techniques of research that I've seen. And I've seen some companies follow that and they end up so spread so thin it does become that losing hand where you can't cut the features out because everyone's going to be upset. 
So you have to continue to invest in the futures, but then all of a sudden you're no longer going to be the number one player in that particular space. Yeah. These are the common things. I mean, I think in the way I think about it in B2B, in, in B2B especially is that the needs are going to be relatively constant. You know, those will be persistent for years and years and years. And so the thing I think about also in B2B is that like your features are sort of ephemeral. Zendesk was a good example of that, like how, you know, agents responded to support tickets, however, and and number of years ago was not how they respond to them now, but that job to be done, that need has remained pretty consistent. And I think that that's kind of a view that when people, it helps you take the long view as opposed to like expanding the jobs you do. Appfolio is a great example of this is like, people are going to always want to rent apartments and people are going to have property that they're going to want to rent to people who want to rent their apartments. And a lot of money moves through that system. So we don't need to keep expanding the number of jobs. And I mean, they have over time, but it's an example of like, when you find that niche, you know, when you find that set of jobs that your product is doing in a B2B setting, this idea that you can't like continuously reinvent how you do those jobs, that you have to do other jobs to survive as to expand is, is such a curious, like, I don't know. It's a puzzle because I've fallen into that intuitive trap myself, but it's it's pretty easy to fall into that trouble, onto that puzzle. Yeah, and you mentioned Andrew Chen, the the next feature fallacy or new feature fallacy. I think that's a great description. Is that we'll build one more thing to hit our goals, but again, you're typically ignoring your core product. And at UserLeap, the team knows this. We'll redesign the same screen ten times. As soon as we know there's a better way, we're going to prioritize that. Because it's, it's always about how can we push what we've already done and continue to iterate on that as opposed to building these 10 other things. But I think the strength of the core product today is really one of the biggest drivers of a company's ultimate success. You look at Slack. I mean, the mockups from Slack when they launched to the current product today, probably about 10% variance. If you think around the product and what it does and you know what it offers, and so in my perspective, just seeing that really strong core product has been, you know, and if you can stay in that lane, often ends up being that home run for that company. Yeah, that's interesting. These are the puzzles every day. <laughs> yes. John, I, I know we're over. Thank you so much for joining today. Yeah, my, my pleasure. This was great, Ryan. It's awesome. Yeah, really excited to have you on today. I've been following you on Twitter. I know our team is a big fan of your writing. Where can we find you online if we'd like to a little bit more? I know you have a book and... I mean, Twitter is still the only... Uh, I do this thing on... I kind of change things around. I did last for a year on Substack after I moved everything off of Medium. So I do a weekly post on Substack to a newsletter. And I, I actually think most people don't even read it in the newsletter, which is, I think, the funny thing that Substack is realizing that they were just like... They might have thought they started as newsletters, but now it's just like a way simpler way to have some posts and stuff. So that's under called the beautiful mess, which is that whole thing. And then, yeah, the Twitter thing is where I kind of perpetually put things out for there. Yeah. Follow if people like it. And where can we find you on Twitter? What's your handle? At John Cuttlefish. At John Cuttlefish. All right. C-U-T-L-E fish. Like cuttlefish. That was my first little like avatar thing on, on Twitter was just like a cuttlefish. So that's. It's stuck. Yeah. Yeah, something stuck. <laughs> awesome. Give John a follow on Twitter. You can see his blog posts, all of his writing there. Your Twitter is very humorous as well. So it, it definitely 
pops out for me, the humor that you've got. So definitely keep it up. In the grand scheme of the Twitter people, the Twitter product people, there are people way more actionable. So like that guy, Shreyas, the content amount to quality ratio is really, really good. So if you want to go and find someone who will like, who's writing a book on Twitter, then you should follow that. But if you follow me, you have to be in for all of it. You know, I'm like my kid, the riding the balance bike, and then poetry of dis or, you know, organizational dysfunction that happens some days. Like, yeah. So you have to buy into the whole thing. So um, be for one. <laughs> I love it. And it, uh, usually we always tell people bring your whole self to work. I think social media, our head of marketing does this as well. She brings her whole self to social media. She shares, you know, the weekend posts, the kid posts, the birthday posts. So I love that you do that as well. Thank you so much for joining. Give John a follow on Twitter and looking forward to having everyone on the next episode. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to request a guest or ask a question, email me at ryan at And if you need a tool that helps you get customer insights easier, faster, and more accurately, check out UserLeap. After my time managing products at other companies, I wanted a simpler way to do customer research, obtain insights, and use those insights to make the right product decisions. That's why I founded UserLeap. Our microsurveys help you get in-depth user insights in real time, understand the why behind your data, and ultimately ship the right thing for your customers. UserLeap is used by product managers at companies like Square, Adobe, and Dropbox, and it's super simple to get started. Try it free or learn more at userleap.com.